This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Between 1976, which Time Magazine called the Year of the Evangelical, and 2008, conservative Christians became increasingly vocal and visible in American politics. It's widely assumed by pundits now that there is an evangelical voting bloc. That may or may not be true, but some are raising questions about the alliance between evangelical Christianity and American politics. One of those is Daryl Hart, visiting professor of history at Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan, and adjunct professor of church history at Westminster Seminary, California. He is the author of A Secular Faith and The Lost Soul of American Protestantism, Deconstructing Evangelicalism, among other titles. His latest is From Billy Graham to Sarah Palin, Evangelicals and the Betrayal of American Conservatism. All these titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Daryl, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. You like that bell, don't you? I do. (laughs) (laughs) That's everybody's favorite. Well, you have produced another important work, and it's getting a lot of attention. You've had some interesting interviews. This is not the first interview you've done about this book. What's been the reaction so far to this volume? People are scratching their heads. The conservatives at places like Front Porch Republic and even at Hillsdale College, I think, are intrigued by the argument. And I think they sort of have been wondering why there's some distance between evangelicals and conservatives, and they're, they're looking for answers, and this might give them some of the, um, the background on that. I've appeared on a number of radio shows, evangelical radio shows, and they don't like the idea that they are not conservative. Oftentimes I've heard that to be a conservative is to be a follower of Jesus Christ in some way, that their, that their conservatism comes straight out of their faith. And I've tried to ask people, for instance, well, Rush Limbaugh is a conservative, right? So I don't necessarily think that he's the greatest conservative, but George Will is a conservative. Are they evangelical Christians? Is, is, it's possible to be conservative and not be evangelical, and it's also possible to be evangelical and be liberal because there are people like Jim Wallace and Ron Sider and Tony Campolo out there. So there's not a one-to-one correspondence, and maybe people are sometimes baptizing their political convictions with their Christian ones. So again, this is in some ways a, another indirect project related to Two Kingdom Theology. During this election cycle, like the previous three or four or five election cycles, evangelicals have routinely been described as the backbone of American conservatism. And you just implied, anyway, that that isn't true. So why isn't that true? Why aren't they conservative? And and to get at that, let's start by doing the basics. When you say conservative, what do you mean? Well, what I mean particularly is a range of political reflection that developed, especially in the 1950s, among people like William F. Buckley Jr. in the pages of the National Review or Russell Kirk in the book The Conservative Mind. And these people were concerned about the American order of government or polity, especially with the new responsibilities the United States had in the Cold War, being the military superpower. They saw that the ideals of being a republic and a constitutional federated order were diminishing, or they're at least a, a danger, a threat to those structures. 
And conservatives have always been worried about the consolidation of power in the national or central government. And that can take a variety of forms, whether it be try to affirm states' rights, as some Democrats used to do, or just affirm communitarianism, as some American thinkers have tried to do. But that resistance to consolidation and centralization in a national authority has been one that conservatives have raised concerns about. And evangelicals are very late to that process. They became part of the so-called conservative movement with Ronald Reagan, and they will often talk about small government, but they don't mind having executive orders from the White House about certain moral issues that they're concerned about, which is precisely what a conservative would act against. These laws, these moral convictions should arise up from local structures and and be embodied in a particular place in a local community rather than having a top-down form of government. So there are a number of anomalies between evangelicals and conservatism. And again, part of it is a historical difference that conservatism— the kind that has produced people like Barry Goldwater in 64 and then Ronald Reagan in 1980. The origins of that movement were in the 1950s, and evangelicals really don't get involved politically on the conservative side until the 70s with the moral majority and Jerry Falwell. And so there are two different sources there, and they've come together in the Republican Party. And it, you know, there are only two options every election, generally speaking. So it's, it's the case that many conservatives are going to re- vote Republican – But the Republican Party is not synonymous with conservatism. Which, as you and I talk, the Iowa caucuses have just transpired, and we're looking now towards New Hampshire and South Carolina and Florida and so forth. And some of those dynamics seem to be working out perhaps right in front of our eyes. Walk us back historically through conservatism. You went back to 1950s and the rise of the sort of modern conservative movement with William F. Buckley and Russell Kirk and some of the others, but the roots of American conservatism go back a lot further. Kirk's book goes back to the Federalists and John Adams. I mean, some would try to find a kind of conservatism in Thomas Jefferson and his agrarianism, the value of the yeoman farmer. How do you trace it? When you you think about the lineage, do you go back to Burke? Where do you go? Yeah, no, it's constructed in a lot of ways. I mean— What do you mean by constructed? It means that you can often put in a lot of different people into it because you can see a similar impulse. And one of those impulses that conservatives in the 50s detected when they tried to construct a lineage of conservatism that oftentimes did go back to Burke— was this, I think Buckley said the phrase, you know, someone standing up and yelling, stop, that the social change isn't necessarily progress. It's not necessarily moving forward. It actually may be disrupting all sorts of things. And sometimes what the conservative is called to do is just stand up and yell, stop. And what conservatives then try to do is try to conserve as much of the order that we already have in place and make sure that we don't lose it as we go forward, in quotes. Because it may not be forward, it may actually be going backward. So there's a there's a rootedness in the past and trying to preserve at least what's good in the past, and especially the order that we have achieved in the past, as opposed to, and this is where Burke is important, as opposed to the innovations and ideology of something like the French Revolution, which is going to try to level and reshape and redesign and transform society into some kind of just prosperous, equitable order. In a radical, egalitarian way. Right. right. And, and conservatives are always afraid of that because that kind of revolutionary radicalism 
is going to end up usually disrupting. And every single revolution, except for the United States, you know, and the, okay, the glorious revolution, so all the Protestants got, revolutions are good, I guess. But, you know, the French Revolution is incredibly destructive. The Rus- Russian Revolution, the German Revolution of 1918, the, the introduced the Weimar Republic. I mean, there's, these are all very difficult and pernicious things where tyranny can happen as much as quality and freedom. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. This is kind of important because frequently in secondary texts or school textbooks, the American Revolution and the French Revolution are sort of casually equated. I know Mm -hmm. as an undergraduate political science student, my professors didn't make a very clear distinction between the French Revolution and the American Revolution. And more than once, it was at least implied, if not said outright, they were essentially the same thing. But that's, if you read the history of the French Revolution, it's very different from the history of the American Revolution. It's a very different spirit and very different outcome. And they very much tried to do something different. Uh, Granted, I mean, both tried to be republics, and a republic was a novelty. I mean, the English experimented with the republic in 1649 during the Commonwealth era, and that didn't go so well for a number of people. But there's a similarity between the early American republic and the colonial structures that are in place. No one tried to level those institutions. In fact, the Americans tried to preserve those colonies and there's those governmental structures, of course, get the royalists out. But the French Revolution, I mean, they tried to remake France. They even tried to remake the calendar. I mean, they tried to make the week a 10-day week rather than a 7-day week because that would mean there'd be more days for people to work as opposed to having to get Sundays off. In some ways, the French Revolution introduced not only a, a revolution against existing social orders, but it was a revolution against nature, the state of right. things, givenness, in other words, in inherent structures that are built into creation. So in some ways, a war against creation. And in in some of the Dutch saw that, right? Right. In the 19th century, you had the rise of the anti-revolutionary party led by Groen van Prinsterer. I got that right. I said I said that right. I want people you to did. notice that. And Abraham Kuyper, who would, at the, around the turn of the 20th century, become prime minister— in the Netherlands and serve a term of four years and then finish out his political career as a backbencher in the Dutch parliament. So there is this historic connection between Christianity and anti-revolutionary politics. So what's the alternative, just to define our terms, to conservatism? And we've talked about the revolutionary politics in France, but in America, what's the alternative historically been called? Since the word liberal has come to take on in American politics a different connotation. Right. So is is that the proper alternative or antithesis to conservative? How do you answer that? This gets into questions of definition. And in many respects, any American conservative is really a conservative liberal in some ways, because the American polity is a liberal order. The American polity did away with crown and church. Granted, there were state churches at the local level, but they eventually went away as well. So we have to understand the American polity is a fundamentally liberal polity, but that polity changes, especially in the 20th century after two world wars and the New Deal and the civil rights legislation of the 1960s, so that government becomes, especially the federal government, really does take on more and more power and authority within the American polity, not just over people's lives and not just over taxation, but increasingly the federal government is going to stand for what it means to be American. And that's new 
in the 20th century. In the 19th century, things are still much more diverse. It's much more possible to think of yourself as, first of all, a Nebraskan or a Pennsylvanian than it is as an American. So the local communities, local states mattered much more prior to 1900. And then in the 20th century, all these developments that in some ways have been admirable for the United States to try to take care of poverty, to try to fix racial problems in the United States, to try to beat tyrants around the world, they've also created problems for the kind of structures and balance of powers, not just among the executive, the legislative, and judicial branches, but also between the federal and the state governments and even community governments. All of those things have been conservatives of the 50s were arguing disrupted by the kinds of consolidation of power in Washington. American politics became increasingly federalized through the 20th century, Mm -hmm. in part in response to the Great Depression, in part in response to the threat of tyranny from World War II, German imperialism, and then in response to the Cold War. Everything became increasingly federalized, which transforms what it means to be a conservative. I mean, a conservative in the 20th century isn't exactly the same thing as a conservative in the 19th century. It's important to see here that this conversation of the last several minutes has not involved religion at all. So that if evangelicals think that they are conservative because they're religious, you know, and there's a lot of debate right now over what Scripture teaches, sufficiency of Scripture, does it teach all of life and all that? And we don't necessarily have to get into that, but these questions about the relationship between the judicial, executive, and legislative branches, or between Pennsylvania and Washington, D.C., or between Harrisburg in Pennsylvania and Chalfont, Pennsylvania, these are all questions that don't necessarily have a directly religious or biblical basis. And so for evangelicals to come into these debates and say, we're going to fix it, and we're going to appeal to Jesus in the Bible, is really to miss the point of the American polity. It's one thing to say that there is a distinctively Christian view of the world in general terms, right? That God is, that he has revealed himself in nature and in scripture, that his revelation is true and authoritative, binding, and so forth. Certainly, we all agree that there is a Christian grid through which reality has to be interpreted. But it's another step to say, through that grid, I know what... Harrisburg's policy towards borrowing money in order to pave roads should be, or whether we should float a bond to build a civic center. What's the Christian position Mm -hmm. on the Harrisburg Civic Center? Right. That's a little more complicated. When you take a poke at transformationalism or sometimes what some people have called worldview-ism, you're not saying there's no such thing as a Christian worldview, but the way it gets used by evangelicals For example, Chuck Colson, Nancy Piercy, and others who've written a great deal adapting some version of Abraham Kuyper, again, whether it's faithful Mm -hmm. to Kuyper or not is another question, but there's been an adaptation by American evangelicals and application of Kuyper to American politics, which implicitly you're raising questions about that here. In some ways, it's apples and oranges, and part of why people find Christian, I don't like the word worldview, but I'll use it for the sake of this interview, why they find that appealing is because it's inspiring and it seems to be relevant. But to read Schaefer on how shall we then live, or Kuyper's lectures on Calvinism, or Rutherford's book on Lex Rex is not going to help me understand whether the American Constitution should have ten amendments or not, or whether to settle the debates between the anti-federalists and the federalists, whether we should have a confederacy 
a confederation of states or a federated arrangement of states. And so to read all these Christian sources is not going to help you with some of those arguments. It's going to be much more important to read the Federalist Papers, to read the Anti-Federalist, to understand that. And that doesn't mean that God is irrelevant in the sense— God created those people. God is ordering this. This is part of God's providential unfolding of things. It's, God is not unrelated to this, but what the Bible teaches and what the Bible reveals and what Christians have sometimes even reflected on when it comes to legislation or politics is still fairly far removed from the actual inner workings of something that is good, which is how to arrange a society, how to preserve order, how to have as much liberty as possible. People have sometimes struggled to think about their daily life in a way that is consistent with their Christian faith. One of the problems that I think provoked people like Colson and Piercy and others to embrace some adaptation of Kuiper's insight is the intuition and the observation that people have been sometimes guilty of either intentionally or unintentionally compartmentalizing their faith so that their faith was something they experienced and believed and lived in one sphere of their life and then sort of disregarded in another. Is there some place between that sort of compartmentalization and maybe an overreaching worldviewism, which lays claim to knowing God's plan for whatever local, state, or even national issues that a particular political entity is facing? Yeah, I guess the question for me still is, where is that the case, that that compartmentalization is going on? I'm still not as convinced that it had happened. I think oftentimes that compartmentalization argument means is that the churches weren't taking a proper stand on certain matters. Sure. And for instance, the church does oppose murder. Go to the Sixth Commandment. All the Reformed churches have affirmations and, and explain what the Sixth Commandment—but are they picketing somewhere about murder? Well, that's a different matter. And so does that mean that they've compartmentalized it so they teach against murder on Sunday, but then they don't do anything about it during the week? Well— you know, it's not the corporate church's job to do something about it. It's not the pastor's duty to go out and pick it throughout the week. And so I do think that sometimes that compartmentalization argument doesn't pick up on the differences that Kuiper himself would have affirmed between the corporate or the institutional church or the church as organization and organism. Right. But on an individual level, right. isn't it the case that American Christians perhaps prior to their more recent political engagement might not have attempted to think about public questions with respect to their faith much at all. For example, if you go back and read what Christians were writing about abortion in the 60s and early 70s, even in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, as I recall, there's a report on abortion. And I think today, you know, all these years after Roe v. Wade, most of us, and based on what we know about what actually happens in you know, gestation and development, we probably would look at things differently than we did in the 60s. Mm -hmm. That's probably a good thing. And I suspect that prior to Roe v. Wade, a lot of Americans weren't even thinking about those kinds of issues, their faith. And we could go all the way back to slavery. I mean, certainly there were people saying, well, look, chattel slavery is just business. It doesn't really have anything, anything to do with Christianity. Well, it does if there's an implied anthropology view of humanity in the buying and selling of people and the treating of them as subhumans mm -hmm. and the legislation, endorsing legislation that 
functionally makes them subhuman, as in Dred Scott. So I'm not sure I accept that there hasn't been compartmentalization. It seems too easy to point to larger and smaller examples of compartmentalization. I'm not saying that Christianity necessarily tells us how to solve the problem of slavery, and I appreciate the spirituality of the church. At the same time, it seems inescapable to me that the Christian faith does say something about how we ought to regard people, and then that has implications, perhaps, for what we ought to say about at least some forms of slavery, or how we ought to think about whether human beings have a right to be conceived and not killed in the uterus or in the womb. The reason still for some measure of discomfort is because it does seem that when you begin to try to break down the compartmentalization, People have basically adopted certain political positions as Christian ones because they think that they have reflected on something biblically or Christianly. I'm a Christian. I'm trying to be faithful to Jesus. I believe this is the right thing for our society. That position must be Christian. In the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. God the Father created through his word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son is the Word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. God the Spirit works through the preaching of the Word. For 31 years, Westminster Seminary, California has stood for the truth and reliability of God's Word. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 760-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. Okay, and that's important because it's not the case that once someone reflects on a question that they've necessarily arrived at a God's eye view of what a particular polity should do in a particular question. Those are sort of two different things. It's one thing to attempt in a good faith manner to apply your Christian convictions and view of the world to a particular question. It's another thing to say that is the Christian response to a particular problem. That seems to be somewhat overreaching. Right. And this is where it does seem to me that Christian liberty is an important idea to keep in mind, not necessarily the way that Confession of Faith for Presbyterians describes it, because that's much more of a spiritual category. Christian liberty, as we've come to know it in the 20th century, has to do more with the kind of liberties that Christians may enjoy because Scripture doesn't necessarily speak to it, and all things are created good, and you know, Murray's essay on the weak and the strong, or Paul talking about meat offered to idols, whatever, there's an element of freedom now that Christians are no longer bound by the Old Testament rules and regulations, not moral law per se, but ceremonial law, etc. And so it may be that people have reflected on their Christian walk or Christian teaching in the way that they live their lives, but it's not going to be evident to the Chuck Colsons or Nancy Piercy's of the world because it doesn't lead to the sort of causes that they are most concerned about. but Corporate political action. Yeah. I mean, my myself, through readings of people like Wendell Berry or Leon Cass, not necessarily Orthodox Christians, but who are very attentive to nature and order that God has created, am aware oftentimes of the waste that our economy produces. And so, you know, what that does to the environment, what that does to landfills and the like— I mean, I'm aware of that, and I actually try to live my life that's very difficult in some way to take that into account. But does that count? 
does that register on anybody's scale about Daryl's transforming the world because he's doing this? So that's the other perspective I'm trying to bring to this. This is an interesting discussion because one of the things that you point out is that Christians, in fact, haven't always agreed. And prior to what we know as, even quote-unquote, evangelical politics, in the 19th century, evangelicals tended to take a rather different approach to politics. What was the nature of evangelical politics in the 19th century in America? Well, the evangelicals of the Second Great Awakening associated with Charles Finney— were large supporters of the Whig political party and then the Republican party. And what does that mean? Well, what it means is the Whig and Republican parties were interested in an American system or an American way, meaning more industrialization, more centralization, greater economic development. Democratic Party at the time was much more inclined to try to cut farmers' break and help farmers out in local communities. And the Democratic Party was also the party of ethnic Protestants and Roman Catholics, immigrants oftentimes, who were suspicious of Yankee imperialism and people forcing either the American way or the Protestant way or the evangelical way down their throats. So the Democrats sort of stood for a kind of multiculturalism then, but it fit with an American polity that gave a lot of discretion to local governments and state governments. This is part of the reason why Lincoln tried to preserve the union. They wanted a national order, and they wanted to try to have as much centralization and uniformity for economic progress and national stability as possible. And in some ways, evangelicals are still following that. And the conservatism that develops in the 1950s are in some ways, even though they're voting Republican, they're in some ways attuned to the critics of the Whig and Republican parties in the 19th century. And this is getting way more complicated than most listeners probably would like it to be. And and again, it's an indication, though, of how much, if we're going to talk about American politics and the history of American politics, we need to think more about Jefferson and Madison and Lincoln and Wilson than about Jesus or Kuyper or or even Machen. We need to know some of our political history in order to think responsibly, even if we're trying to do so in a Christian way, about those things. And, and too often, in my own experience, when I've seen Christians talk about these matters, they kind of run roughshod over important differences between Federalists, Anti-Federalists, Whigs, Democrats, and all this, in a hope of trying to find some kind of Christian polity. If you're going to engage in intelligent political discourse— You need to do more than read the Gospels. You certainly need to read the Gospels, but you need to know more than that and more than the New Testament or even more than the Old Testament in order to be fruitful and useful in contemporary political discourse. Unless you want to just opt out and form a new state. I mean, a state that's really built around biblical teaching solely. But most of the territory in the world has been claimed. (laughs) (laughs) Let's zoom back to the 70s, and you describe a group of people as party crashers. Right. Who are the party crashers, and what do you mean by that? It means the moral majority, and conservatism was already going before then, and had fits and starts, and... Barry Goldwater was in some ways considered a crowning moment or achievement for conservatives. He wrote a book, although he didn't write it, was, it was ghostwritten for him, Conscience of a Conservative. But it gave life and gave recognition to this wing of conservatives in America. And then a, a Reagan sort of also echoed Goldwater in important ways. But what helped get Reagan elected clearly, and Republicans were smart about this, was cultivating 
not just evangelicals, but also Reagan Democrats, I mean, Roman Catholics who were disaffected from the Democratic Party. So it's an interesting image. I mean, Richard John Newhouse wrote an essay about fundamentalists and what they want, and I think he used some image of either a picnic or a party, and I sort of tried to work with that. And it is quite interesting to see the various kinds of conservatives that existed around Reagan, the older Buckley Kirk types who are Roman Catholic and are drinking and smoking. There are neoconservatives, among them many Jewish ones. And all of a sudden, Falwell shows up, who's a teetotaler, a Southerner, wearing perhaps white patent leather shoes. And there are some discordant elements to that party. And you could see that if evangelicals came to a conservative political party, and there were a lot of open bars, et cetera, that it might cast a somewhat different pall over the uh, event. Doesn't that illustrate a way in which the dynamics of the 19th century have sort of been reversed? Isn't it the case that through at least part of the 20th century, it's been the Republicans who've been arguably, maybe post-Goldwater, more interested in decentralization, and the Democrats, post-FDR, more interested in centralization. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering about the lines you were drawing to the 19th century and then up to, say, 76. Right. I think that's true, although— It works in different ways. I mean, Democrats in some ways are still about decentralization all the way down to families and schools. So every family, every school has to be multicultural. We're going to have a lot of Italian schools. We're going to have a lot of Irish schools, et cetera. No, every school has to have a little bit of Irish, a little bit of Italian, et cetera. But it's very top down. Right. I mean, after all, the Department of Education was created under a Democrat president which was a centralizing move. So, I mean, the Democrats did achieve a number of reforms that forced the states to comply in a lot of ways. And the social welfare state is certainly, by and large, although heavily funded by Richard Nixon, nevertheless, arguably a Democrat institution. Right. And then the the problem in that construction a little bit, too, on the other side, is that Republicans have generally been the the strong military party, although, of course, Democrats— Which is centralizing. Right. And there's no way to have a small— federal government, it seems to me, and have a big military. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So it's complicated, and figuring out what exactly is the Christian position is more difficult than it might seem. Not something you can do just by looking at a website for a couple of minutes and then deciding what God's view of the Fed is. Now, here we are both over 50. Lord, help us. How are younger evangelicals in their 20s and 30s relating to those labels conservative and liberal or right and left? What's happening with them? Well, during the Bush era, the 20s-somethings were clearly running from it as fast as they can. There was a lot of Bush fatigue, a lot of Iraq war fatigue. I don't think that it's going any better with the younger evangelicals, that they're any more inclined to view conservatism as an appealing position because it still looks like the party of scold when it comes to telling people how to behave in the bedroom or whatever. And so again, you're not saying that God hasn't said right, no. how we ought to behave or right. that scripture doesn't say or that nature doesn't say. You're simply saying it's a little more complicated when a political party adopts positions on Well, and I, I I'm sympathetic I'm ethics. certainly sympathetic to some of the concerns that Republican candidates are expressing about those matters. I'm just trying to say that for younger evangelicals who have been schooled in a kind of 
tolerance mentality and don't want to look as being judgmental. The Republicans or conservatives don't look as appealing because they look judgmental in that way. And I think there's... And that could produce a huge change. Right. For you and me, multiculturalism is a fact, but it's not something that shaped us growing up. It's something to which we've had to respond. But if someone is in their teens, 20s, maybe even early 30s, multiculturalism isn't just an interesting phenomenon. That's the ethos within which they've been raised. So that you and I, we grew up hearing jokes about different sexual proclivities that our younger friends probably haven't heard. And if they heard, they'd be scandalized. Right. So they look at the world rather differently than you and, and I do. And even in their churches, a lot of evangelical churches aren't drawing the lines either the way that the churches that we grew up with did, whether they were fundamentalists and made a clear distinction between the world and worldliness and holiness, or even among Reformed and Presbyterian churches where there was a much greater sense that we are different from other kinds of problems. So the sense of antithesis right. for them isn't what it was. Right. Our parents' generation would have been, you know, the greatest generation would have been generally Reagan-loving people in some way. And baby boomer generation has produced a number of the figures who are now associated more with the evangelical left, Wallace, Randy Balmer, um, Greg Boyd. And I think evangelical colleges, liberal arts colleges, are very ambivalent about political conservatism. And most of the students going through those institutions are probably becoming more liberal. So that, I mean, my projection is that evangelical voting now is in the 70 percentiles for Republicans. It will probably remain that way in the next election. But I could see it by 2024 or 2028 being down in the 50s, depending on what happens with certain issues. Which is a pretty marked demographic and voting shift. In your last chapter, you talk about heroism and you set up a contrast. Talk about that. What is heroism, and what's the problem with it, and what's the alternative to it? Well, that chapter is about Mike Gerson's uh, heroic conservatism. Gerson was a speechwriter for President Bush, graduate of Wheaton College, and even grew up in an Orthodox Presbyterian church. I'm still trying to find out what congregation. He contrasts heroic conservatism with the kind of conservatism of Buckley and Kirk, and his heroic conservatism is a transforming faith. He wants to go out and accomplish great things, and he looks at the revivals of the the 19th century and the Second Great Awakening and all the moral reform activity that came out of that in various voluntary associations as being a great thing. And he doesn't have the instinct of conservatives like a Burke who are saying, no, wait a minute, stop, be careful what you're doing, because all of these reforms, moral reforms, even though they may be wholesome, you may be leveling existing institutions that are good for preserving some kind of order for restraining... Unintended consequences. Right. For restraining people from their excesses, restraining power, restraining tyranny, all these different things that can happen when you put people with a moral agenda, even though it may be a good morality, in place. So it's a curious chapter, and it really does speak well to the differences between contemporary evangelicals, the religious right, and older kind of American conservatism. Let me put you on the spot. You know Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, Not well. I mean, I I remember hearing a lecture a long time ago. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you remember there was such a thing. Yeah. If you had to set up a hierarchy of political virtues for Christians who want to identify with conservatism, what would that hierarchy of virtues or behaviors or habits be? I'll put three. And at first I would go with local. 
and here in the conclusion of the book, I appeal to political philosophers Michael Oakeshott and Roger Scruton, Englishmen, who have a very strong sense that what makes conservatives different oftentimes is their attachments to local places, people, meaning families, associations, and working in those places and with those people and fulfilling one's obligations to parents, to children, to neighbors, to local businesses, to community organizations, et cetera, is, it seems to me, very important. And it's something that a lot of conservatives, even the Rush Limbaugh types, just run roughshod over, uh, unfortunately. How so? What do you mean? Well, I mean, in the sense that there's not that kind of attachment. They look at conservatism as some kind of national greatness as opposed to a local expression. And it doesn't even have to be a local greatness. It's just this is the way we are here in this particular community, and let's try to make this as good a place as possible. It doesn't have to be great. And I can say this now, living in a place like Hillsdale, Michigan, which is a very small town, it doesn't have huge aspirations – but there's a real place. There are real people there. We have a real form of government, and it's a congenial place to live. It's not Washington. It's not New York City. It's not even Detroit. But So that's one thing, localism. Second, I would say, is order or stability, depending on how you put it, that trying to preserve order as much as possible is a good thing. And I think this is very much a Christian or at least creational thing because God created a very orderly universe. And you certainly find that in Calvin. If there was anything in Calvin's politics, any one thread that ties it together, it's his relative fear of chaos and disorder Mm -hmm. represented, for example, by the 16th century Anabaptist radicals who were perceived as a threat to the order on a number of levels, socially, politically, culturally, to the family and and so forth. Calvin uh, reacts to the Anabaptists by advocating social order, Church order. Church order and the inherent structure of things as divinely constituted. Right, right. So order and stability is a good thing. And then lastly, then I'd put freedom or liberty. What do you mean by that? And here I mean less freedom for individuals, but freedom for institutions or authorities, local authorities or mediating authorities. So freedom for parents to rear their children as they see fit. Freedom for churches to minister as they see fit, freedom for a neighborhood association to oppose a playground as they see, but to recognize the legitimate authority of these local bodies, not just individuals, but of these mediating structures, and to recognize their freedom. And so what you want is an ordered liberty. You want to have order and liberty, and there's a tension between them, and you have to try to work that out. But one of the insights, I think, of modern conservatism that I've learned about, again, that I don't think evangelicals are attuned to, is the idea that the rise of individual autonomy has come precisely on the tails of big government. So big government has thrived on granting individuals their liberties or civil liberties or rights. And in the between, what has, what has suffered are the rights of states, local communities, of families, of schools, sometimes of churches, and all those mediating institutions that really are the closest to the individual and most responsible to the individual and most congenial in, in many respects to the individual have lost their authority so that you have big state, you have big individuals, and not a lot in between. And conservatives really want to hold on to those institutions in between. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes.
Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.